0: Bibles of Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning, and the title is Unity Through Humility, Unity Through Humility. The Apostle Paul, you know, again, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read the scriptures and you've read a lot about Paul, you know something about his character, about his, you know, his Strengths and powers that he had in the Lord. And what a foe he was to the devil. Paul was a pain in the neck to the devil. And we should be too. Satan didn't know what to do with Paul. Satan tried locking him up in prison. More than once. But he just win the jailers to Christ. If he writes letters he'll influence millions of the thinking millions for as long as this old earth exists. If you set Paul free, he'll win continents for Christ. And if you kill him, he'll wear a martyr's crown. So, you know, what could you do with a guy like that? Chapter 1 was all about Paul's rejoicing attitude as he pointed out the joys that we have in Christ. In chapter 2, he introduces us to other victories, Or victorious people in his letter, I should say. And he dealt more directly with the problem that was ruining the fellowship at Philippi, at the church there. He had already shown the Philippians what a divided spirit was doing at Rome. Where some were preaching Christ out of contention. Hoping to to add more suffering to Paul's already deplorable conditions in prison. And now, Paul urges the Philippians to get rid of that spirit of strife from their midst at once, once and for all. He tried to persuade them by giving them three examples of the kind of spirit that every Christian should display. And that was the spirit that was displayed by Jesus, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Paul's first and best example, of course, was Jesus. In verses 1 through 4, Paul led up uh, to the example of Christ by urging his Philippian friends not to add to his burdens by squabbling with each other. His concern is obvious here in verse 1, and that was the disharmony that he, said, he, he mentions in verses two, and four, 2 through 4. The greatest danger possibly facing the church is an attack on its source of authority, and that is the word of God. Spiritual laziness and a general coldness and coldness to biblical truth and God's standards of righteousness also creates serious problems in the body of Christ. The lack of concern is usually denied. I should say, this lack of concern is usually denied. They, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not lazy in the Lord, and I'm, you know, not this, and I'm not that, and they're often sincere, but. It's a self deceptive sincerity, but it attacks the spirituality of the church. And in the same way, we're to fear whatever attacks the unity of the church. All of these things can disrupt, weaken, and destroy a church by disharmony, causing disunity and division. And when Paul closed his letter to the Corinthians, he shared his fear with them of the sins that would destroy the unity. He said this in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. He says, For I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. And he was also afraid of sins that destroyed the purity of the church. He said then in verse 21, he says, I'm afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. And I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You have not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. So it seems like the Philippian church faced the danger of disharmony and division from the personal conflict between two women in the church that we'll see later on in chapter 4. Disunity is a potential danger for every church. And it's a danger that Paul dealt with to some degree in every one of his letters to the churches. Disunity among God's people really grieves the Lord. It breaks his heart. Everyone should pray that men won't tear apart what God has joined together in the body of Christ. Tearing apart Christ's church is one of Satan's major goals. He loves it. He rejoices when he sees the Lord's church torn apart. You know, so that we have the constant challenge, we have that constant challenge of keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Paul said. Because a divided, quarrelsome church is spiritually weak on top of being a lousy testimony to the world. You know, when they see Christians you know quarreled among themselves and, and and misbehaving, why would why would they want to come to that church? Or a bad witness. So it's it, it it so it's not much of a threat to the devil's work, and it doesn't have much power for moving the, the, the gospel of Christ forward. You know, Satan said, "Well, hey, I don't need to bother that church. They're they're doing everything for me. They're doing they're doing it themselves. I don't have to do anything." So trying to do everything that we can, sparing no effort to maintain or restore the spiritual unity of the body, is, is easily the most demanding. And difficult and constant challenge for its leaders. Even though sound doctrine and moral purity, and passionate commitment to the Lord and His work are absolutely necessary for a church's effective ministry, by themselves they can't. The leaders can't by themselves guarantee protection from disharmony. It's a it's a it's a, a thing that we all do together. Not just the leaders can do. It's all a part of our responsibility as a Christian. Paul's concern here is not about doctrines. There wasn't a doctrinal problem. It wasn't about ideas or, or practices that were unbiblical. It's about interpretations, standards, interests, and preferences—our personal little things—and and those kinds. Of, they're mostly matters of personal choice. These things should never be allowed to stir up controversy within the body of Christ. You know, to insist on your own way. In these things. You know, it's sinful. Because it foolishly divides each other. As believers. It shows a prideful desire to want to insist on your way. To push your own personal views on people. Or your style or your agenda. The way you do things. We must never as Christians compromise doctrines or principles. That are clearly biblical. That's a given. The essentials of faith... Those aren't those aren't things that we can discuss and debate. But we are to humbly submit to one another on secondary issues, non-essentials of the faith. That's a mark of spiritual strength, okay? You know, we can agree to disagree, you know? And so th- that's what Paul's making the point here. So it's a mark of maturity and love that God highly honors, you know, when we can, you know, on those non essential things, we can say, okay, well, you know, That's where you and I disagree, but we can disagree agreeably. So again, it's a mark of maturity and love that God highly honors because, you see, that promotes and preserves harmony in His church. So let's begin verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in comfort, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... So the basis for what Paul is asking for is threefold. First, there's the highest basis. He says, consolation in Christ, comfort of love. Now, the word consolation here is a similar word, similar to the word translated comforter in John 14, 16. So the word consolation carries the thoughts of both the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus. The word comfort here isn't found anywhere else in Scripture. It means stimulating. It means force or incentive. So Paul was asking his friends to keep to the comforting, calming power of the Lord Jesus and the stimulating power of love first and foremost. He says, stick to those things. The Philippians would make Paul happy if they took advantage of this power and they would settle their arguments through this power. Secondly, was the supernatural basis. He said, and the fellowship of the spirit. That means participation in the Spirit or sharing in the Spirit. Now, some conflicts, they're too too strong to be settled in natural ways. We need a higher power. The work of the Holy Spirit is needed in those those situations. For example, the case between Peter and John. They had opposite personalities. Peter was a doer. John was a dreamer. And when the Lord told Peter that he would be called on to die for him, Peter automatically said, well, what about John? You know, what about him? Remember Jesus' answer, Peter, mind your own business. I've got what I'm going to do with John, and I've got what I'm going to do with you. But after Pentecost, man, Peter and John, they enjoyed a friendly relationship. The third thing that we see is there was the supporting basis, the affection and mercy, he said there in verse 1. In other words, heart and compassion. Paul was calling on his friends' natural kindness Tenderness and feeling to help to work things out. They all, you know, they, they of all people surely wouldn't want to add to his pain by causing him grief. He's saying, "Help me out here. I've got my enemies causing me pain. Now, I, I, I don't need you guys to to be squabbling with one another and being prideful and, and selfish and, and you know causing me grief when I see that in the body of Christ." So, the threefold basis for Paul's appeal to his brothers and sisters was, was very you know, appropriate he wasn't going to leave any stone unturned he was going to do all that he could in his search for unity in the body of christ look at the first part of verse two now he said fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love being of one accord one mind i did, i read the whole thing um, paul's cup of joy was pretty full paul had learned the secret of joy which should be one's way of life, okay, of all who love the Lord. That should be our full cup of joy, loving Jesus with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Paul had discovered the secret on, on the road to Damascus. When he looked into the face of Jesus for the first time, Paul had been surprised by joy because Jesus is joy. Paul was surprised by joy on the Damascus road and he kept on adding to his joy as he grew in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can happen. The more you grow and know of Jesus Christ, the more joy that that will fill your cup. Joy is knowing Jesus. And Paul was getting to know Jesus better and better and better. Joy filled Paul's soul. His cup of joy was now full. But... He still wanted more. There was still room to top it off. So in verse two, we hear him pleading for a few more drops of joy to overflow his cup. He said, "Fulfill my joy, fulfill my cup, which would you know fill it to overflowing." And, and we wanted to be overflowing. The news is the, the news that his quarreling friends had settled their differences forever was at the foot of the cross. Which is that's where we need to go to to again solve those differences at the foot of the cross. Let's look at verses 3 through 4. He said, "Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself, letting each of you look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others." Paul used several words and phrases to make his point. He told them, "Guys, be like-minded. That means to mind or think the same thing. Paul wanted the Philippians to be like-minded in what they thought. A meeting would bring their petty bickering to a sensible and reasonable end. Paul wanted them to be like-minded in what they labored, that is, in what they did for the Lord, what they did together. In other words, he wanted them to have the same love worked out in them as he had been, as had been worked out in his own life for the Lord. And then Paul wanted them to be like-minded in what they strived for. He urged them, hey guys, be of one of core and one mind. In other words, all of you have the same purpose in mind, unity. What Paul was after wasn't just for them to smooth out their differences. But he wanted them to have total unity of mind, heart, and purpose in the Lord Jesus. Because nothing less would do. The Philippians had to bury their disagreements and bury them so deep that they could never dig them up again. You see, strife pulls the other person down. Vain glory puts oneself up. Both cause discord in the body of Christ because strife either pulls a person down or builds another one up and it causes strife. Even a little contentiousness and pride can ruin a gathering of God's people. Remember in the wilderness, the children of Israel were blemished by their spirit of criticism? Their constant complaining? I mean, their spirit of of criticism and, and complaining was so obvious from the very beginning. And then it came to a head when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against Moses and Aaron. They challenged their leadership. They said, hey, you guys take too much upon yourselves. See, they wanted to bring Moses and Aaron down, and they wanted to lift themselves up. Now, the cure for their differences, Paul says here in verse 3, and all differences, he says, In lowliness of mind, let each one of us esteem others better than themselves. Paul wasn't saying we should consider everybody else to be more gifted or more capable than we are. It's a false humility that belittles any acknowledgments of one's gift. Like, you know, oh, you know, you've got, the oh, no, I don't have that gift. You know, I'm just, you know. That's a false humility. That's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. God's given us all gifts. The Bible tells us, and we're to use them for his glory. C.S. Lewis said, C.S. Lewis showed that true humility is obvious when a man who designs the most beautiful cathedral in the world and knows it would have been happy just to say, hey, you know, he'd be just as happy if somebody else designed it. To pretend like you don't have any talents when you do, or when you know you that you do, again, that's not humility, it's hypocrisy. If we esteem others better than ourselves, we're not considering everybody else to be superior to ourselves. But we do want everybody else to be treated special. Humility is the opposite of conceit and selfish ambition. Humility is concern for the progress of others. We, we, you know, we should desire to help and want people to do better, to be better, to progress in their relationship with the Lord, to go forward. We should want that and help them to do that. So again, this is what Paul is t- talking about. The man who reigns, uh, reigns in the affections of God's people isn't the bossy, pushy man. But they're the quiet godly humble man who's always seeking the good of other people barnabas was a man like that he was an encourager to seek your own advancement that's worldly to seek the 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 prosperity and the good and the promotion of others that's godly and that's what god wants us to to esteem others higher than ourselves and then like i said verse 4 expresses the principle of the spirit of the lord jesus Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. Those who hear Paul's words, those who heed Paul's words, they they have a greater view of life. You know, it's outward. It's not just about themselves. They're looking outward, they're looking to others. So the view that seeks its own tends to be narrow-minded. Selfish, small, and meanness, man, meanness is in their soul. But the view that seeks to promote the interest and the well-being of others leads to a larger life here and in eternity. Remember Lot? When him and Abraham were separating, Lot tried to promote himself when he chose the well-watered plains of Jordan. You know, he was thoughtless. I mean, Abraham had done so much for him. Abraham was his elder. Abraham had had taken care of Lot. And yet when when they were splitting up and and, and they looked at the valley before them, he took the best, what he thought was the best. He took the well-watered plains of Jordan. Again, he was thoughtless in his selfish desire to take the best. And he took the most fertile part of the country for himself. But God could see what was going to happen later on. He always sees. He knows what's going on. God could see already those green valleys and those prosperous cities. That that Lot chose after a while they were going to be burned and buried in sulfur and salt. They were going to be a smoking ruin of desolation. In Lot's choosing of that well watered plain and those cities, Lot lost his fortune. He lost his family in Sodom, and he almost lost his faith. He definitely lost his testimony. All the land of Canaan had been given to Abraham by God. And yet Abraham, upright, unselfish servant of God, he just stood there. And Lot said, I'll take all of this. He said, Lot, he says, we're brethren. He wasn't going to argue over you know, what was best and what we He says, he, he did, Lot, Abraham didn't want to ruin his testimony. He said, We're brethren. You know, and, and, and those around us are watching. So, again, um, Lot took what looked like the best to him. But when they separated, again, the bigger man was Abraham. The man with the bigger heart was Abraham. Abraham didn't lose anything by allowing Lot to pick what he wanted to have. Because Abraham was selfless. Lot went east, and the minute his caravan had gone over the hill and down into the valley toward the well-watered lands, God spoke. He said this to Abraham. Abraham, lift your eyes now and look from the places where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. He says, for all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Everything Paul said in verses 1 through 4 was leading up to Christ's example. It was an example of Christ. In verses 5 through 11, Paul gives us the example of Christ, by far the greatest example of all. And then in verses 5 through 6, He thinks of others. And in verses 9 through 11, he glorifies God through it all. Look at verse 5 now. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul starts by using the messianic title. Notice, um, uh, Christ Jesus. Look at verse 5 again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the order of the... Because you'll see Christ Jesus. You'll see Jesus Christ. The order of the names and titles are never random. They don't use just Christ Jesus one minute and Jesus Christ. Just because they want to mix up the names or, you know, there's a meaning to it. There's a purpose in the the titles. Again, they're never random. There's always a purpose in the New Testament. For example, when it's used as Christ Jesus, when Christ Jesus is mentioned, it's putting the emphasis on the exalted one, Christ the Messiah, who is Jesus. Christ Jesus who made himself, verse 7 says, of no, uh, no reputation, which means to make empty. When Jesus Christ is used, it's describing the despised and rejected one. Jesus was the despised and rejected Messiah. But he was glorified afterward and testifies to his resurrection. Christ Jesus suggests his grace. Jesus Christ suggests his glory. As the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus was the anointed one. The Messiah who had been promised for a long time in the Old Testament. The one that the Jews were looking for and waiting for. The Lord never gloried in his position. Jesus never gloried in his position, but he never denied it when he was glorified. Verse 5 tells us that the mind of Christ is to be the mind of every Christian. The mind of Christ is to be the mind of every Christian. How do you get the mind of Christ? Knowing him and knowing his word. Knowing him and knowing his word. Let this mind be in you. Let this mind means to think of, to be mindful of. We are to think like he did. Look at verses 6 through 7. who, speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Here Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. And then in the, the next words out of his mouth, he says he took on the form of a bondservant. So one minute he says he's in the form of God, and then he's in the form of a, of a slave, a bondservant. It shows, the, 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 the shows that he was 100% God, 100% man. He came to be a man in every sense of the word. He experienced everything that man would experience upon this earth. But he didn't sin. He was also God in every sense of the word. With certain divine rights, attributes, qualities, and privileges. Verse 7 says, or declares, a real humanity that, that involves certain human obligations to God. So Paul placed the two sentences side by side, man and God, in the form of God, and the form of a bondservant. When Jesus came in the flesh, his incarnation, when he came as man, he did not empty himself of his deity. He never lost his deity. He was still God. But what he did, he put on a clothing of humanity in order to be a servant. In other words, when Jesus came down in a man, it wasn't like he took off his deity. What he did, he put on the clothing of the man and he covered his deity. It was still there. He was of human flesh and blood. His choosing to be a servant gives power to Paul's you know, request for, his, for the Philippian believers to be examples of Christ. In view of the heretical interpretation of the incarnation, that some people say that when Jesus came in the flesh, he emptied, he emptied himself of his deity. No, he didn't. He was and always is and will be God. He covered his deity by putting on blood and flesh. So he never emptied himself of his deity. And it's important to understand that when Jesus became a man, he didn't and couldn't stop being God. Because he was the eternal, uncreated, and self-existing creator of the universe. The one that the angels worshipped. Because Christ was God and always had been God, he didn't think it says here that he was robbery to be equal with God. Because he was. From his exalted position as God, Christ's first step downward was not to regard equality with God a thing to seize or to be carried off by force like a prize. Robbery. when he said it was not robbery to be equal to God, robbery, robbery refers to something that is seized or carried off by force. But he didn't consider it to be robbery, to be equal to God, because Jesus already possessed equality with God. The meaning of robbery is not taking hold of, but of holding on to or clinging to. Jesus had all the rights and all the privileges of God, which, could he, which he could never lose. And yet Jesus refused to selfishly cling to His superior position as the divine Son of, of God, nor look at it as a prized possession to be used for Himself. He was always helping others. He used His glory, He used His, self, his power and his, and his deity to help others, never for Himself. You see, at any time, he, Jesus could have called on His Father. And on the cross, he could have immediately called down 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him. But he didn't because he knew it was for our good. He did it for our good. And yet, you know, because if he would have called down the angels to rescue him, he would have hindered his father's plan. See, it was his father's plan for him to die on the cross for our sins. And he obediently did what his father asked him to do. No doubt, Jesus was starving in the wilderness. Remember, after forty days uh, in, in the wilderness, and he refused to turn the stones into bread when Satan tempted to do that to feed himself. But what did he do? He graciously multiplied loaves and fish to feed the hungry multitudes. You see, he didn't he didn't do it for himself when he needed it, but he did it for others when they did. You see, that's the attitude of selfless giving of oneself and of one's possessions power and privileges that should characterize all who say they are Christians that's what Paul is ta- talking about here they should be willing not to hold on so tightly you know to the blessings that they have you know which 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 blessings we have only because of the lord Christians are are set apart from the Lord, uh, set apart from the world as children of God and joint heirs with Christ. And yet they must not hang on again to those privileges and blessings. Instead, like their Lord, they must hold them loosely and be willing to sacrifice them for the benefit of others. Verse eight. He says, and. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. A lot of people are willing to serve others if it doesn't cost them. If it's not inconvenient. If there's no, you know, hardship involved. But if there's a price to pay, how quickly they lose interest. It says here that Jesus became obedient even to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. Dr. J.H. Howitt said, Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If If there's to be any blessing, there must be some bleeding. If there's going to be a song, first there has to be a sacrifice. If there's going to be a crown, First, there must be a cross. At a religious festival in Brazil, a missionary was going from booth to booth and he was examining the merchandise that the villagers were selling. He saw a sign above one booth. It said, cheap crosses. Cheap crosses. He thought to himself, that's what many Christians are looking for these days. Cheap crosses crosses that won't cost them anything Jesus said if any man desires to follow after me let him pick up his cross and follow me sometimes that it's very difficult but again it's a cheap cross if we're not going to follow and pick it up if we're not going to you know, follow it to the end our Lord Jesus' cross was not cheap and because it wasn't cheap why should mine be Again, when you look at the horrors of death by crucifixion. It started with stabbing pain when the nails were driven through his hands and feet. And then a sickening jolt when the cross was lifted up and then dropped into the hole. And the whole weight of his body tore the nail holes that were in his hands and his feet. And then there was dizziness and then cramps, uncontrollable thirst, starvation. Sleeplessness, and it all added to his torments. Gangrene, tetanus, fever, it all followed. The heat from the sun, the torment of flies adding to his suffering. The unnatural position of the cross resulted in cramps. The crushed tendons throbbed and the arteries swelled. Every movement causes agony. And the anguish gradually increased the longer he hung there. Now for a strong man... Death might not come for three days. The physical torture alone was terrible. But there was also the public shame of hanging naked, exposed for all to see. There was still more. He was mocked by those he came to save. And worst of all, he did nothing. He knew no sin. There was no fault in him. But he was made sin for us. So no cheap crosses. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God also, because of what had God, you know, He had gone to the cross, humiliation through the cross. He says, therefore, as a result of the cross, God also highly exalted Him and, and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself for others, and God highly exalted him. And the result of this exaltation? It glorified God. He said, I had done I have done which the Father hath asked me. And he glorified God through his through again through his crucifixion, but with his resurrection. When men buried Jesus, that was the last thing that, that man would do to him that that human hands did to him from that point on it was god who worked men had done their worst to the savior but god exalted him and honored him men ridiculed him they slandered his name but the father gave him a glorious name he arose from the dead he returned in victory to heaven and he's now seated at the right hand of the father interceding for you and me his exaltation included sovereign authority over all creatures. It says in Isaiah 45:23, "In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He has authority over all creatures." Under the earth likely refers to the lost because God's family is either in heaven or on earth. So in closing, as I said there on the very uh, in verse 11, one day every knee every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and glory to the Father. And every knee is going to bow. One day that's going to happen. All are going to bow before him and they're going to confess that he is Lord. But the thing is, you want to do that now. You want to do it because you want to do it. It's voluntary. Through his salvation. To bow before him. Rather than to bow before him at the judgment. Judgment. Because then you'll be doing it out of fear. Fear. And it's a time of condemnation then. You can bow now in reverence or you can bow at a time of judgment, but either way, you're going to bow. Either way. The whole purpose of Christ's humiliation on the cross and His exaltation in the resurrection is to glorify God. Our salvation has its ultimate purpose. We are to glorify God as believers. He saved us to serve Him and to glorify Him. And the person with a submissive mind, as they live for others, must expect sacrifice. You must expect service. Jesus said, those who live godly lives, you're going to be hated. You're going to suffer persecution. The world's going to hate the godly. But in the end, it's going to lead to the glory. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And that's going to be when we stand before him. Joseph suffered and served God for 13 years. But then God exalted him and made him the second ruler of Egypt. David was anointed king when he was just a young man. And he experienced years of hardship and suffering, running from Saul, trying to stay alive. But at the right time, God exalted him as king of Israel. The joy of the submissive mind comes not only from helping others and sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, but mostly from knowing we're glorifying God. We're letting our light shine through our good works. And this glorifies the Father in heaven. Now we might not see that glory today, but we will when Jesus comes and he rewards his faithful servants. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Father, we thank you for Paul's lesson to us here, God. May we take heed, Lord. And Father, may we be, again, imitators of Christ. May we follow his example, Lord. Father, may we, may we esteem others higher than ourselves, Lord, as Jesus did. God, may we have that serving men, mentality, Lord, that serving desire, Lord, to be like Jesus, God, that we would glorify him one day through our testimony, Lord. Maybe you're here to, this, this, this morning, and maybe you're not a believer, you're not a Christian. You haven't made that decision yet. What a great way it would be to start the new year, being born again. As we're praying and, and everyone's praying for the person around them, if you're if you're here this morning and, and the Spirit of God has touched your heart and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, just lift up your hand and put it back down again and we'll just pray for you. Anybody. Again, it's... it's It's a wonderful thing that Jesus is... One person? Great. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right. I'm going to say this prayer out loud and you you, you, you repeat it to the Lord in your heart. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to never turn back from following after you. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need a Bible, come and see me. or.